Okay, we are live in the Brigino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. Uh, we start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been to the clubhouse before, welcome home. Uh, tonight happens to be the opening night of our spring book event calendar. And throwing out the first pitch is a Pulitzer Prize winner, which is about as good as it gets. So uh, please join me in welcoming Ira Burkow to the clubhouse. And the book, uh, for those of you listening to the podcast, is Summers at Shea, Tom Seaver Loses His Overcoat and Other Mets Stories by Ira Burkow. Uh, and I think what we're going to do to start, because, since uh, those of you who know, who know Ira's work know what kind of storyteller he is, and it would be kind of a waste if we didn't let Ira tell stories here tonight. So I think what we're going to do is just kind of start by throwing out some names, some Met-related items, and Ira's going to take it from there. So I think probably the best way to start is how this book starts, which is with uh, Casey Stengel. Yeah, um, if you would, I would start just one, one step ahead of that okay. from the, the subtitle of the book, Tom Seaver Loses His Overcoat and Other Met Stories. Uh, and, uh, and, that, and then I'll be happy to uh, segue into Casey Stengel because Ca- Casey is always a segue. <laughs> um, uh, it was the uh, baseball writer's dinner of 19, uh, January 1970 after Seaver's great 1969 season. And uh, he was honored at the Baseball Writers' Dinner, and I was at the Baseball Writers' Dinner. And then we had agreed to, uh, he was going, the next night, uh, he was going to get a, the, the Hickok Belt Award. Hickok gave an award, Hickok Belt people in Rochester, New York, gave an award for the, the best uh, professional athlete of the year. And Seaver was going to get this for the, the great pitcher for the Miracle Mets of 1969. And so uh, he, uh, Joe Lewis, who was also going to be honored, and an off-fielder named Clerk, Kurt Bleffrey, who used to play with the Orioles. I think he had a cup of coffee with the Yankees, too, possibly. But uh, anyway, I don't know what Kurt was doing going to Rochester, but... Uh, <laughs> Lewis, Seaver, me, uh, were going up there. And so we took it from the uh, baseball writer's dinner. We took a cab to, uh, it would be Penn Station, going up to Rochester, I think, not uh, not Grand Central. Whichever one it was, uh, the the dinner was at the what, the old uh, Americana or the Sheraton. Uh, and so we got into a cab, and as we're going to the cab, in the cab, Seaver says, I, I had an overcoat. What happened to my overcoat? <laughs> anyway, he lost his overcoat, and uh, and we're we're driving, and uh, it was really interesting. Uh, um, Seaver and I and Bleffrey were in the back seat, and uh, Joe Lewis was in the front seat, and we're driving. And the 1970 and the uh, this is not in, in the book, but uh, and I, and um, uh, the driver had was kind of a hippie, had kind of long hair. And he had on some music. And as we're driving, and Bleffrey was had been drinking, started making some remarks about the the um, 
the sexual uh, pro- pro- proclivities that he thought that of the um, of the driver, which weren't his. And he made sort of making some remarks. <laughs> sort of making some remarks. And then at one point, and Seaver and I were not saying anything. Joe Lewis was not saying anything. And uh, as we got driving, uh, Bleffrey said, "Hey, to the driver, turn off that hippie music." Mm-hmm. And with looking straight ahead, Joe Lewis said, "And Joe Lewis was supposed to be unlettered, you know." And Joe Lewis said, "That's Greek music." <laughs> <laughs> Total silence. <laughs> Leffrey never said another word. <laughs> but then we get to the, uh, we took the train. And um, and there was, we were talking, uh, who was the greatest athlete? So we were just talking around and before going to bed. And uh, and uh, I remember Seaver thinking that it was Sandy Koufax pitching all those, at that time, pitching uh, those four straight no-hitters. He, and uh, <clears throat> so anyway, uh we uh, we then we we went to uh, to go to bed and um, Seaver and I were in this compartment and we flipped and he got the bottom bunk I got the top bunk. <laughs> How many of you can say that you slept with Tom Seaver? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, but but so now we get so now it's like six in the morning and we get out and it's Rochester and it's cold. Seaver's lost his overcoat. <laughs> and uh, we're waiting for a cab, and it was just kind of bad out. And, uh, and here was Bleffrey, who had made a jerk of himself. And uh, he had his coat. And so I'm waiting for the cab, and it's cold, and it's dark. And Bleffrey takes off his coat and puts it over Seaver's right shoulder <laughs> and said, we sh- you have to keep this warm, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he redeemed himself, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Uh, Casey Stengel. Um, I got to know Casey. Uh, I came to New York in 1967, and I uh, so I wasn't here when Casey was the manager of either the Yankees or the Mets. But he was a consultant for the Mets, uh, and that's when I met him. He'd be in the dugout. He'd come from California. He'd, he'd sort of hang around, and um, and he was. He always thought of Casey as being funny and being a joke. And I remember before a game. He was standing out uh, with a lot of the writers uh, on, the, on the field before a game um, near the dugout. And he started talking in his Stengelese for, I think, do we all know this convoluted kind of language which uh, only Stengel, it was a, he was the only person in the world who spoke Stengelese, you know, because nobody else could imitate it. Uh, but he started talking, and I, I'd never seen him before. I never was around him. And he started talking about how to play the outfield. And as he's talking, which was funny, I started seeing how to play the outfield in a way I've never seen it before. And I started thinking, this guy's brilliant. You know, uh, not only does he have his own language, he really knows the game in a way that so many of the rest of us don't. And uh, so he was um, he was wonderful. And uh, and then we we talked about his wife Edna. And he said, she, he, you know, Casey had been a, a baseball player himself in the major leagues for a number of years. And he said, and he told me that Edna was the best catch he ever made. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then um, uh, there was a there was a question I well there was a question I always wanted to ask him, and and I was around him some, and uh, but um, I never got around to it. Maybe I just hadn't thought about it at the time. Maybe in, in retrospect, I think about it, but. 
when he was with Edna in a in a romantic moment, and when he whispered sweet nothings <laughs> into her ear, was it in Stengelese? <laughs> <laughs> um, and then um, I had done a book with Walt Frazier called Rock and Steady. Uh, I was working uh, a, a guide to a basketball and cool, and uh, and I wanted to do a book with Casey on his. Uh, it was called the the uh, Casey Stengel's um, historical. Um, oh, I forgot. Uh, uh, it was it was first. It was uh, uh, how to play how to play the various positions. It was an instructional book, uh, but it was with his history. So at first base, all the first basemen he had ever seen, and how they played it, and then the next place, sec- second base, with pictures and everything. So, and I thought this was a great idea, and so I was with Casey in a, in a hotel room and explaining to him the kind of book I wanted to do. And the book with Frazier had come out, and it, it got a lot of attention. It was really a beautiful book. And he, he turned the page and he said, well, this is a perfection thing, you know. So I thought, wow, we, I think Casey may want to do this. <laughs> and so, um, but then he just started describing to me about Babe Ruth and, uh, and about how um, it was harder to play the infield uh, in the earlier days because uh, they didn't wear steel cups in the infield. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, you know, if a ball bounced up, it could really hurt you. And um, uh, so at any way, he said he would think about it. And, uh, oh, a couple weeks later, uh, it's this is in the book, uh, I get a letter from him uh, in green ink, as I recall. <laughs> and I, of course, I've saved the letter. And saying to me that um, uh, that um, uh, he was interested, at, at, but he, it would be too much work. And one of the most memorable, and then uh, uh, one of the most memorable things about the letter is that he he started one paragraph with a semicolon. <laughs> um, the letter's a collector a collector's item. Uh, and uh, and then he actually he died like six months later or something you know but um, uh, he was really smart really funny and uh, and you know like uh, people ask me who are the best interviews you've ever had and and I off the top of my head there are four and there are four who what's a great interview someone you ask a question to and they give you a great answer. That you don't have to ask him another question, and and they talk in pictures, so it's all visual, and uh, so my, my four favorite people who I, I knew if I would just ask them one question, I have a whole I have fill up a notebook, and one was Casey, and one was Muhammad Ali, and one was Pete Rose, and the other. A lot of you probably may not realize, but it was Fran Tarkenton, mm-hmm. the uh, the uh, quarterback, and who's really smart, really, really smart. But those four guys, and um, and some others who were also great, were um, uh, Arthur Ashe and, and Bill Bradley. Arthur Ashe, Bill Bradley, and Tarkenton. Uh, Tarkenton and Bradley went to a Christian uh, summer camp uh, years when they were, were young. And then uh, also, Ash got to be friendly with them. And these three guys 
three of the smartest athletes uh, in our generation or beyond, they would go to dinner together. And I would love to have had a tape recorder <laughs> at their at their yeah. dinners, yeah. Uh, but Fran Fran is and he's a he's a um, he's a Fox News kind of guy. <laughs> I, I I give him slack. <laughs> I give him slack on this. Um, at, uh, uh, when I was with Newspaper Enterprise Association, which was Scripps Howard Syndicate before I got to the New York Times, and um, sometimes we would have an athlete who was prominent write a column once a week. And Fran did that once a week uh, for us uh, when he got to the Giants. And it was always insightful, always great. Also, Tom Seaver, in 1970, wrote the column. And by writing it, I mean uh, I would call them. I would write it. But I would call them, and we would talk. So it was their information... Uh, and put pr- as, as well as I could into their words, but in kind of a, a newspaper form. And so one time, um, uh, Seaver called me. And he said, Ira, he said, I'm such a fan of Henry Aaron. He said, I'd like to write... And, and Seaver was, at USC, was a journalism major. He said, I'd li-, but he hadn't done any journalism in a while. And he said, I'd like to write the column myself on Henry Aaron. And so I said, I'm not going to dissuade you from this because now I don't have to do the work. So I'm happy for you to do it. So uh, the deadline's about 4 o'clock. So now it's, I talked to him early in the morning. So now it's 2 o'clock and I hadn't heard from him. Now it's 2.30, I hadn't heard from him. Now it's 3 o'clock. I decide, maybe I should give him a call. <laughs> so I call him. And he said, I, I just got home. I took a legal pad to the library to sit and write it in longhand the column. He said, I got halfway through the page, and I didn't have anything more to say. <laughs> so I said, Tom, let's talk. <laughs> so we did, and of course, the column came out. But I would say that that was the difference between you know a professional writer and a, I have to say an amateur writer, which would have been the same if I tried to pitch for the Mets. <laughs> There's the amateur pitcher and, pro- and the professional pitcher. <laughs> yeah. So it's not this year though. No, no, not this. Just out of interest, have you uh, since he's gone on to California after his playing days? Have you been in touch with him at all? No. Uh, I last week I sent him sent him the book. Uh, I would see him. Oh well, yes, I would see him at uh, at the um, uh, the induction ceremonies at, at Cooperstown, which I liked uh, to go to, and my wife Dolly was sitting over there liked to go to, and it seemed nobody else at the paper was interested in going, and we had a great time. And so anyway, we spent time with these people, and uh, and I would see um, I would see Tom, and uh, and I was friendly with Tom and, and Nancy, and um, uh, so. Uh, uh, I would, we, we would talk, and he and he's a he's a wine kind of, oh, oh, right, he a owns a vineyard right. and he produces his own wines. But before that, he was living in Greenwich, Connecticut, and he was a gardener. He liked gardening, so he would he would trap us uh, <laughs> <laughs> among the plaques in Cooperstown at <laughs> the Hall of Fame, and he started telling us about how to garden. And I don't know, he was raising tulips or something. <laughs> I, I don't remember, but. Um, uh, that was um, 
Well, actually, uh, I've never seen an interview with Tom Seaver, which will take us to another time frame in Mets history. I've never seen an interview with Tom Seaver where he has not broken down uh, speaking about Gil Hodges. And just any stories that either come to mind about Gil Hodges, Art Shamsky, the 69 Mets, any any of that time frame. Yeah, well, in, well, uh, uh, I covered the 69 Mets, uh, traveled with them, especially near the end of the season, which I depict uh, in columns uh, in the book. And... Um, and Hodges was just kind of a big, classy guy. Uh, and just being in his presence, there was a leadership aura uh, to him. And, um, uh, and, and, and they, they, they loved him. Um, uh, and, um, and Shamsky loved him. They, they, they all did. Uh, I had lunch with Shamsky, who I inter- uh, after the first game of the 69 World Series, Shamsky came up with men on base with a chan- uh, as a pinch hitter with two outs in the ninth inning. Uh, the situation, I think there were maybe two men on. They were maybe uh, down by two runs, something like that. And um, he was sent in as a pinch hitter. And he hit the ball hard, but he hit it at the second baseman. Third out. And then afterward, um, he was. The, I, I saw him in the, uh, and I did a column on him because I went to the, his locker after the game and, and he said, I failed. He said, I, I had a chance to really do something special in front of my family, in front of the whole nation, and I failed. I said, your job was to hit the ball hard, and you did. And looking back now, um, uh, he wished he had hit, he had, had, had a seeing-eye ball, you know, but he, he didn't. But um, he told me a story, and now it's about a different manager, but a manager along the lines of Gil, of Gil Hodges. And when uh, Shamsky uh, was a rookie uh, with the Cincinnati Reds in 1965, and I never, I, I, I had not known this story before. Um, and um, Fred Hutchinson was the manager of the Cincinnati Reds, and um, uh, Shamsky was was a teammate of Frank Robinson, the great Hall of Fame Frank Robinson, and Frank Robinson. Uh, Shamsky was calling Mr. Robinson <laughs> because he was in awe of, of Robinson. And um, uh, so uh, earlier in the game, Robinson gets hit with a pitch. And apparently his left arm is, gets ballooned, ballooned up a little bit. But he's still staying in the game. But it seems obvious that he c- can't get around a little bit. But now by like the seventh inning, he goes up into the on-deck circle. And he was a really a tough character and a tough guy and a great player and Hall of Fame player. And he's on the on-deck circle and Fred Hutchinson says to Shamsky, pinch hit for Frank Robinson. And Robinson probably in his whole life had never been pinch hit. <laughs> he's on the on-deck circle and Shamsky comes out and excuse this one profanity, but we're doing it in real time here. Absolutely. And uh, so um, uh, Shamsky goes out and uh, Robinson on the on-deck circle and Robinson says what are you doing here? <laughs> and Shamsky said well uh, the manager said I have to pitch it for you. Get the fuck back to the dugout. <laughs> so he goes back he goes back to the dugout and Hutchinson says what are you doing here? <laughs> he said Robinson, Mr. Robinson told me to come back to the dugout. 
get back there and tell him you're pinch hitting. <laughs> Goes back there, he says, you're back again. <laughs> I told you to get the fuck out of here. <laughs> he, he told me, he says, and so Robinson looks at, at Hutchinson, and Hutchinson goes, your arm, like, your arm is bad. So Robinson says, okay. So before leaving the on-deck circle, he says to Shamsky, don't embarrass me. <laughs> Shamsky's quaking. You know. he's, a, he's a rookie. He's in this situation. He said he comes up to bat. The first pitch, he hits over the center field fence. <laughs> He rounds the bases. He's, his legs are wobbly, but he rounds the bases, and he comes back to the dugout, and Frank Robinson says, you can now call me Frank. <laughs> <laughs> That's my best Gil Hodges story. <laughs> it doesn't get better than that. Uh, all right, so now let's move ahead a, a little bit in time frame to the, the 73 era. Of a, of a Willie Mays who's about to say goodbye, who's hobbling around, uh, Yogi Berra, uh, Tug McGraw, yeah. any, any, anything from there? Well, yeah. Um, uh, the, um, I was in the dugout with Yogi, and the phone rings. And uh, he says, yeah, yeah. And he says... Uh, Okay, okay, sweetheart. Okay, okay. He hangs up the phone. And so I said, Yogi, I hate to ask you this, but who's calling you on the dugout phone? He said, oh, oh Bill White. <laughs> I said, Bill White? I said, and you call him sweetheart? <laughs> oh, no, Bill White's secretary. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> uh, speaking about Cooperstown at the Hall of Fame, Steve Jacobson, who was the uh, sports at sports columnist, very fine sports columnist for a news day, uh, for years. Uh, Steve and I uh, were in the um, Otisaga Hotel when um, uh, the buses were coming up to take the Hall of Fame players to the induction ceremony. And so Steve comes over to Yogi and said, "Yogi, he had a baseball. I said, I'd like you to autograph this baseball, but with your full name, Lawrence Peter Barra." So Yogi takes the ball and has a pen. And he looks at Steve and he says, you know, I haven't written Lawrence Peter Bearer in such a long time, I've forgotten how to spell it. <laughs> it was, now, now, a lot of times, Yogi, I mean, we think, you know, Joe Garagiola wrote a lot of the Yogi stuff, and, and he may, may have, um, you know, like uh, directions to his house. I mean, but sometimes Yogi said these things, not even trying to be funny. Uh Although one time I was with him when he did try to be funny, and he was. And this is when he was with the uh, Houston Astros. Am I getting off the seventh? No, Yogi, Yogi's <laughs> forever a Met. So, so uh, he was with, remember he's a coach with the Houston Astros for a short while. So uh, I was in, um, oh, God, where by outside of Orlando where the Houston Astros train. Kissimmee. 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 And um, so in those days, the Houston team had a black uh, jersey, white pants. So I was walking with Yogi along the outfield uh, fence, and some people said, Yogi, Yogi, can you sign an autograph? So he goes over, and then one woman gives him a pen, and he signs it, and he hands it back, and he said, your pen is leaking. And he goes he goes like this, and, he's, and he said, you know, 
this jersey used to be white. <laughs> now, he was really making a joke. It's the only time I've ever heard Yogi make a joke. <laughs> but he made a joke. And... Uh, 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 but but most of the time, Yogi would talk vanilla phrases. I mean, he was he was a terrible interview because he would just give you general stuff. And uh, and um, uh, this is regarding Tony Kubek. Uh, but re- re- remind me uh, uh, because um, uh, well, uh, when Tony was doing the game of the week, uh, he had been a Yankee player, and I was doing the game of the week, and I was with. Quebec behind the batting cage when the uh, either the, it was either the Mets or the Yankees and and either Yogi was with the Mets or he's with the Yankees at the time as a coach or a manager I don't remember and um, <clears throat> so I was talking with Quebec and then he saw Yogi walking about twenty feet away so and they used to be teammates of course and so Yogi's walking and so Quebec says hey Yogi and he asked him a question and Yogi gave him one of these vanilla answers and in all seriousness this is now we're talking about the guy who's in more quotes and on the quote books than anybody else and in all seriousness Kubik said you know Yogi you never say anything (laughs) (laughs) by anything give me a good solid you know meetable quote you know meetable (laughs) so uh, how about meaty Uh, um, and um uh, oh, uh, I was going to say, like, you know, uh, Yogi had said directions to his home in uh, in New Jersey. And he had said directions were, when you come to a fork in the road, take it, which is a famous quote. He happens to be accurate because there's a road and then there's a tree in the road. And then you can go either way around the, the tree. When there's a fork in the road, take it. He was being accurate. But I was going to say about Yogi, you know, people, he, he didn't go past the eighth grade. And then he, his first job after uh, after a grade school, he got a job in a shoe factory uh, in St. Louis. But the, <clears throat> this is my idea of why Yogi is one of the smartest people I've ever run across. For Yogi came in into the uh, into the media spotlight about 1947 when he was a rookie. He was 47, and so for. 65 years, and he's now ailing, but he's been in the and, and he's been in the spotlight for some 65 years. And if you go into a baseball quote book, he and Casey Stengel have by far the most quotes. Maybe Babe Ruth, okay, but the guy's just so quoted. And in those 65 years, he has never said anything to get himself into trouble. There has never been a controversy, and the only two controversies or not really of his doing. He told uh, 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 Phil Lenz to stop uh, playing the harmonica on the bus when the team had lost a game. That would, and then got, you know, that was hardly uh, a, a, a negative toward him. And then the only the other thing was he was uh, angry at um, uh, George Steinbrenner for firing him the way he did after he promised that he was going to save the whole season. And he fires him after, what, nine games or something like that in the season. And then for a long time he didn't speak to, to George. But uh, just think about this. These are the only two times that there has been any kind of controversy around Yogi. Uh, and, uh, you know, he was just, to me, it, it takes a, a huge intelligence to be talking all this time, answering all the questions, not saying anything, but answering them. <laughs> uh, and, um, 
you know that you know and 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 Casey called him um, uh, my manager on the field, and you know to be this great catcher and and to, to call the balls and strikes, and then he becomes a manager and he wins a pennant in the National League and he wins a pennant in the American League. Um, so I and I was I've always been a, a big fan of. Uh, and here's a, here's another thing about Yogi. Um, when Yogi, you know, I think that most people would agree uh, would not be the, called the Clark Gable of baseball. Right? <laughs> uh, and um, when he was a rookie in his uh, second, third year, when the Yankees were going to St. Louis, there was a very popular restaurant uh, that uh, they uh, all the ballplayers would go to, and there was a really a, a good-looking waitress. And all the guys would hit, all the players would hit on the waitress. Yogi married her. <laughs> Carmen. Wow. And I asked Carmen once, I said, Carmen, how did Yogi win your heart? <laughs> and what did he say? And she said, it was so long ago, I don't remember. <laughs> but it had to be his genuineness. Uh, sweetness. I don't know. I mean, who knows what women you know, like in men. I don't know. I know. Uh, uh, some people have asked my wife, Dolly, uh, what, what is it about Ira that, you know, why you married him? And she said, poverty is sexy. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, um, that was Yogi. And, um, uh, okay. The uh, before we're going to open it up because I have a feeling our crowd has a few questions. But I have one more question, then, then we'll open it up. There's a great story in here about Ron Darling and Game Seven of the '86 World Series, yeah. and you rode with him to yeah. the ballpark. And I'm just fascinated that a ball player. If you could just talk a little bit yeah. about about how this happened, yeah. I can't believe a ball player allowed um, you to come. I, I, I knew uh, I live in uh, Kips Bay or the Murray Hill area, and Ron did too. And remember the old pitcher uh, Jerry Casale owned a an Italian restaurant on Thirty Fourth Street by by Third Avenue, and we would go in there, and, and Ron would go in there, and, and if it got really crowded, sometimes Ron would help wait on the tables, <laughs> uh, and we got to, we got to be friendly. And so he was essentially my neighbor. I mean, he lived a couple blocks away. And we talked, and I, I had a good relationship with him, uh, you know, as a ball player as well. Uh, and so uh, before the sixth game of the 86 World Series, I said to him, um, uh, I'm, yeah, before the sixth game, I said to him, uh, Ron, if the Mets win, you're scheduled to pitch game seven. And he said, that's right. And so I said, um, uh, if you do pitch game seven, how do you get out to the ballpark? He said, well, I drive. Your car? Yeah. And so uh, I said, um, uh, you drive with anybody? Stop me driving alone. I said, well, could you use a passenger? Mm-hmm. And he said, sure. So we were going to meet at the, um, at the, he parked his car in a parking lot, uh, 37th and Park. And so we were, it was a, uh, a night game. And so we were uh, going to meet at 1 o'clock, I forgot, whatever it was. So I go to the parking lot, and uh, uh, there's no darling there. So I asked the parking lot attendant, um, 
Ron Darling Parks here, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. Uh, but he, he left. I said, Ron Darling left? <laughs> I see my column with wings on it. <laughs> so I walk outside. Oh, my God. And then I hear honking. It was Darling. He just he wanted to get the car in the right place to go on the, 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 on the, uh, the tunnel. Oh, I'm sorry, on the FDR drive. So it was raining. And so now here's Darling. So we start to talk. And I don't want to spoil it for the people who are going to buy this book. <laughs> but, uh, um, and he started telling me his feelings. And, and, and he said, you know, my wife said, this is probably the biggest day of my life. You know, and he wasn't disagreeing with her. Uh, and, um, and he talked about his feelings, his butterflies, and, um, and what this meant. And it was raining. So it was a very moody ride, you know, and because it looked like it wasn't going to stop, and that means that there's no game, and that means that all this mental preparation uh, will have to go for the next day, next night. And, uh, uh, and the game, it turned out, was rained out, but I still had my column. <laughs> <laughs> I still had my column. And, uh, and then um, he... Uh, and he pitched the next day. You know, I don't remember if it was a day game or a night game. I didn't care anymore. A night game. <laughs> I didn't care anymore. Um, uh, but, uh, and then he, I don't think he lasted three innings. He didn't pitch well. He didn't pitch well, yeah. but they won. They won, yeah. But they won. And uh, uh, so that's that's how I did that. Uh, should I, one, one brief uh, uh, go, thing. Go, uh, go. <laughs> on, on, on another, uh, and then we, then we open it to questions or whatever, but... Um, uh, this one is about a, a failed minor league baseball player named Michael Jordan. Um, uh, Michael was, uh, uh, I knew Michael, and he was, uh, I went to Cleveland, they were going to play, uh, this is in basketball, he was going to play the Cleveland um, Bulls against Cleveland Cavaliers in the playoffs on a Monday. They worked out on a Sunday. And uh, so after the workout in the morning, um, I said, Michael, are you going to watch, the Knicks are playing Charlotte that afternoon. I said, you going to watch the Knicks Charlotte game? So, sort of like what I did with Darling. And he said, yeah, I'm going to watch it. And I said, where are you going to see it? He said, oh, my, sweet in the Ritz Carlton. I said, um, who are you watching it with? He said, I got a couple of pals, you know. So I said, well, do you mind if I came up? Because this is going to be an interesting column, him watching the Knicks, you know, so right. New York column, and so he, him watching the Knicks and commenting, which is what he, which is what happened. So, anyway. So we have a meeting. We're going to go out. I'll meet him at the quarter one at, at the Ritz Carlton. The game's at one o'clock. And so, getting on the elevator, are uh, an elderly couple, and they're talking a, either in an accent or in a foreign language. I don't remember which, but the guy looked very familiar. This older guy looked very familiar to me. And so uh, uh, we. We go up on the elevator, and he gets off the same floor. So I guess it was like the special floor for people. And so he gets off on the floor, and I said, excuse me. I hate to ask you this, but aren't you Abba Iban? Abba Iban was the, as we all know, the great Israeli diplomat. And um, I said, um, I introduced myself. I'm Ira sports columnist at the New York Times. And... um, I said, uh, what, what are you doing here? And he said, well, there's a, a distinguished rabbi uh, who is leaving, and I was asked to make remarks at the, the dinner for him. And he said, what are you doing here? <laughs> and I said, I said well, I'm, I'm here to go to the hall. I'm going to interview Michael Jordan. <laughs> 
His, there was like no recognition whatsoever. <laughs> so I said, um, uh, and uh, and his wife said, "Who's Michael Jordan?" <laughs> so as he as Eva being a consummate politician, turned to me and said, "You tell her." <laughs> you tell her. <laughs> I said, "Well, uh, Michael Jordan is the great you know basketball player." Uh, he hadn't yet gone off to the minor leagues yet, you know. He's, uh, so anyway, I go down the hall, I knock on the door. I said, Michael, you won't believe what just happened. He said, what's that? I said, I just met the only person in America who doesn't know who you are. He said, who's that? I said, Ava Ivan. He says, who's he? Ava Ivan. Who's Ava Ivan? I said... Avivan is the greatest. Really he said, "Really?" I said, "Yeah." He said, he "Doesn't know who I am." I said, "That's right." He said, "Good. He won't ask me for tickets." That's great. That's great. Yeah. Uh, did you cover the Mets when marvelous Marv Throneberry played the outfield? He was considered the worst outfielder of all time. And on his birthday, Casey said we were going to give him a cake, but he'd drop it. <laughs> right. right. Uh, uh, no, I, I never did. But of course, the the marvelous Marv Throneberry stories are legend, including one time uh, he was going to leave uh, Stengel's office, and he and he pulled the handle on the door, and the door and the handle came off. Uh, and, uh, oh, and uh, uh, he um, uh, he hit into a triple play <laughs> once, and uh, he came back. And Casey got got the team around. He said, "Look, we have to stop hitting into triple play." I, I was a vendor at Chase Stadium for 10 years. Spent my you look familiar. <laughs> a lot of my childhood there, from like 13 to 23. What years? What years? Uh, 77 to about 86. So I saw a lot of stuff. Actually, my brother and I, we were, we were both vendors there at one point. And when when that, when the Mookie, the ball went under a yeah. partner, I said to my brother before, let's get out of here before the crowd leaves. And he's like, no, no, let's stay. Just, there might be something exciting. And that's when the ball went under with Mookie. Anything interesting like with the ball four, with Jim, you know, Jim Bouton's book where with three, Fritz Peterson and the wives changing, anything juicy like that? <laughs> <laughs> anything juicy like that? This is being recorded. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, with the, uh, it, it, from a, um, a sexual nature. I mean, there was, of course, there was drugs with the. Yeah, no. If if I had known you were going to be coming tonight, <laughs> I would have written something. <laughs> um, no, no. I uh, off the top of my head, I can't. I can't think of of anything. Uh, the Mets were choir boys. They uh, <laughs> well, they weren't choir boys. Um, but I. I I'm sorry to disappoint you. I, 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 uh, 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 no, uh, maybe uh, as, as time went on, I would, uh, I mean, not like um, Alex Rodriguez uh, trying to uh, uh, pick up two women behind the dugout after he was taken out of the game. Uh, there wasn't uh, any of that. Um, there was a lot of staring into the, into the stand. <laughs> in, bat, in batting practice, some guys missed their... They're turning it bad because we're looking into the stand. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, 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 
So the level of, of access and, and intimacy we're able to get with some of these players, you know, riding along in cars or going to hotel yeah. rooms, is that something do you think has gone away in today's journalism? Oh, yeah. Has, I, why yeah. do you think that is? Well, um, they don't need the, the writers any, anymore, I guess. I mean, the television. And, um, and it used to be that you go into the clubhouse, they were all there. Yeah. Uh, now, they aren't. Uh, they all disappear into the trainer's room, from what I understand. I haven't been there. Uh, I was there maybe last year, and um, I mean, one guy comes out, you know, or two guys come out, and everyone, the reporters run, run to the... His, but before, they were all there, and... Uh, uh, and, um, you know, you could say, um, uh, what are you doing for breakfast tomorrow? You know, what are you doing for dinner? And early on, in the early, in the early 60s, early 70s, when these guys weren't making a, much, a lot of money, they were happy to go to dinner with you because you were on the expense account. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, they weren't making a lot of money. Uh, 8500 you know, uh, 7500 you know. Um, uh, and every one of them should boycott Every one of them today should boycott uh, the Hall of Fame induction ceremonies unless Marvin Miller gets in, because Marvin, it's, Marvin Miller was was the forefront of all of this, and everyone, every time one of them gets gets the into the uh, into the Hall of Fame, they should give uh, uh, five minutes on Marvin. Every one of them, and very few of them do anymore. Um, do you think he will eventually get in? I mean, everybody, uh, almost everybody wants him in. It, and, and the stupid owners uh, who resent him are making so much money. And, I mean, the game is better than it, you know, and uh, at, with attendance, Selig's always telling us, you know, uh, how every year attendance uh, records are broken. And so, I mean, how could Marvin Miller have hurt the game? <laughs> uh, I ask you. You know, Hall of Fame, you mentioned, you have a column in the book about uh, why Pete Rose should be in the Hall of Fame. Oh, yeah. How do you feel about the steroid era players? You know, it's interesting. Uh, I vote for the Hall of Fame, and um, I vote for whoever uh, has the best statistics and whoever were, uh, which, which uh, players were the most prominent uh, in, their, in their generation. Uh, I cannot be a judge of who did drugs and who didn't do drugs. Someone said... Uh, Maddox and Glavin are now going to be up for the Hall of Fame this year. Are we 100% sure? Would you bet everything you have that Maddox, who I would guess is clean, but would you bet everything you have that Maddox and, and Glavin uh, did not do steroids? Uh, so we don't know. I mean, we all will uh, uh, strongly assume Derek Jeter didn't do, strong, didn't do steroids. Would we bet our house on it? You know, I mean, so you don't know, and I'm not going to judge it. Um, and so I vote for all of them. Ralph Kiner told me not long ago, he said, he had an interesting point. He said, maybe the Hall of Fame should be broken up into generations. <laughs> you know, so then there's, there's no question about it, you know. But I feel Pete, Pete Rose is a different story from the steroids. Um, and my whole contention with Pete Rose is that uh, after the Dow report, linking him uh, unequivocally to uh, gambling as a manager, there's not a an ounce of evidence, and he's never and he has never and he has always maintained this is true. There's not an ounce of evidence that he he gambled on baseball as a player or a player manager. So if you're going to bet on Pete Rose to go into the Hall of Fame, you're not going to bet a, a, a vote for him to be going in as a manager. You're going to vote going for him as a player. He was Charlie Hustle from the beginning of his career to the end of his career. 
And so that's what that's where the, the vote should be. Now, if, uh, it's his hard luck in this issue that after uh, his playing days, he chose one profession over another. By that I mean he chose to become a manager uh, and wear a uniform instead of becoming a plumber. If he had decided to become a plumber, he'd be in the Hall of Fame right now. Okay. Great. Um, two questions, very different. We just talked about the financial success of the game, where it's at now. Obviously, Mr. Seeley, when he took over, was under $2 billion a year annually, now upwards of 6 MLB.com revolutionized when he could barely probably click a mouse or sign on the internet. Right. We had that, that vision. Um, the network was more cable rollouts than, than their peer leagues. Um, but he's he's maybe on the way out in the next couple of years. Knowing the... Seeley? Seeley. Uh, ne- next year, I think. Yeah. Knowing the inside of who's at 245 Park now, and who's jockeying for that seat, if it ended up in one of their hands... Is the by, game by one of whose hands, yeah. Mr. Brosnan, Tim Brosnan, somebody that's already in... Oh, Jim Brosnan. Uh, Jim Brosnan. Yeah, yeah. Tim Brosnan. Not, not Jim Bunning. But Jim, no, 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 no. Somebody that's already in in the system, in, in MLB. Do you think the game is... Jim Brosnan is? I, I haven't followed that. Jim no, no. Um, t- uh, Tim Brosnan, Jimmy Lee Sullivan. Oh, Tim Brosnan. Somebody that's at the yeah, 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 yeah. If they don't go outside... Yeah, I, right. I, have, I have no idea. I just have, I just have no idea. Uh, uh, yeah, right. um, you know, like like a guy like uh, Sandy Alderson, who has right. a lot of respect, you sure. know, and kind of a, an intellectual, uh, or, or Theo Epstein, you know. Right. I mean, somebody like that. But it has to be somebody who the owners feel they can control. Sure. So uh, that's owner. why the guy went to Faye Vincent, Faye Vincent, because they felt that he was going off on his own to try to uh, negotiate uh, contracts and television and so forth. The, uh, my, my second question is... Um, uh, the Double Day Wilpon Ownership Group came about, I think, 1980. It's the year I was born. Yeah. So, the guy that in, in my era that I, I always knew if the Mets were up a couple of runs or down a couple of runs, it was only going to get worse, was Anthony Young. So, in all your years <laughs> of covering the Mets, who was your guy that you saw him trotting in from right field uh, and you knew? Uh, I will tell you because he's on the Mets now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm from Chicago. Uh, I, I've been in New York for 47 years or something, but I was born and raised in Chicago. And and you you continue to follow the team that you followed as a kid. So, pardon me, but I'm a Cub fan. Okay, which sort of disqualifies me from being a sports fan. So, but Latroy Hawkins, Latroy Hawkins from, from Gary, Indiana. From I don't care where he's from. What was that it, 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 when he blew those games against the Mets? Uh, sure. sure. Uh, uh, I mean, all of a sudden, Latroy Hawkins is coming in. You know, it reminded me of the Cubs had a a um, had a uh, a relief pitcher named uh, uh, Zamora. What's his first name? Oscar. Oscar Zamora. And in Chicago, they had a, a little ditty uh, uh, for him. When the pitch is so fat that the ball hits the bat, that's Zamora. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, you're not going to hear me sing anymore. That's it. <laughs> Willie's going to sing. No, I won't sing. Just a question. So many people today don't even realize that at one time the Mets were the hotter team in New York yeah. than the Yankees. What are your observations of how it swung to the Yankees and whether the Mets might ever be the hotter team in New York than the Yankees again? Well, when the, when the Mets, it, like talking about the early 70s, uh, late, late 60s, early 70s, uh, the Yankees were terrible. Uh and uh, and the Mets 
were, were I mean, they came out of nowhere. Uh, you know, I mean, they were uh, uh, ninth and tenth place up until sixty-nine. Up until sixty-nine, from sixty-two to six, through sixty-eight, they were ninth or tenth place. And then, of course, uh, you know, the only other team in sixty-nine uh, that they had to compete against was the Cubs, and of course, the Cubs were pushovers, mm. so they, <laughs> they beat the Cubs. Uh, um, but um, you know the Yankees w- w- were not interesting, and uh, and their, their their ballpark I think was falling apart at one point. The, the Yankees moved over to uh, to Shea Stadium in the early seventies, I think right. it was. Um, but um, and now the Mets are down, and and the Yankees had, had been interesting. Uh, now now neither one is very interesting right now, especially the Yankees in the playoffs uh, last year. So um, uh, it's just a matter of. Of, of, of who's exciting and, and, and that's generally based on winning um, I mean when the, and when the Mets were the lowly Mets and the the lovable Mets what, what they call them the uh, the amazing the amazing Mets yeah I mean they weren't filling up the the, the, the ballpark you know it was when they started uh, when they started playing well did Stengel actually say can anyone here play this game because he's quoted on it. he he said something not quite like that. Uh, it was uh, uh, Breslin might have taken a liberty, <laughs> but I but I like Jimmy, and so I'm the, I'm going to say that's that Casey did say. Uh, well, how did Yogi feel about his son Dale when Dale got into trouble? Well, that's yeah that uh, that was an embarrassment for him, of course, and uh, you know parents don't always have total control of their kids. I'll say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was Willie's papa. Uh, so, um, you know, I mean, and, and Dale was Dale was part of a culture, you know. I mean, uh, uh, and, you know, and, 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 and Keith Hernandez, who's really smart, got, got, in, got into it as well, you know. By the way, I think Keith Hernandez should be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, I mean, he was a, a very good hitter, MVP one year, but he was maybe the greatest fielding first baseman of all time. And I say that because I don't know of any other f- first baseman, including Gil Hodges, including uh, Mattingly, uh, including uh, George Sisler, probably, um, who changed the other team's strategy. When there's a man on second and no outs, and if they want to bunt, they got a third in a close game. They they couldn't bunt to first base down, down first base because he's going to throw the guy out of third base. I mean, he was amazing. Uh, I mean, I once wrote, uh, pardon me for quoting myself, <laughs> but uh, something about you could you could almost hear his brain whirring, you know, uh, from the stands. Um, and and he was also somebody who, after games, uh, if you didn't quote him, he could give you a good background on what really happened. And sometimes you could you could quote him, but you would go for backgrounding. And he was always smart. I mean, he would be a great uh, manager. And I think he and Darling are very good uh, uh, broadcasters. Yeah. I have uh, two questions for you. You mentioned about the time you rode with uh, uh, Darling. Darling in the car. How come you didn't ask him for the following day since, uh, since the game was put over? Well, I had my column and, and two columns in a row about driving with Darling maybe uh, <laughs> over, 
overkill. The other question is, you were talking about the ball players uh, owe a lot. Uh, to, uh, Marvin uh, Miller. Yeah, Miller, because of how the salaries have increased. How about Kurt Flood? Don't you think he should be? Uh, well, um, you know, he had his moment. Uh, I, I, I mean, um, uh, I mean, Kurt Flood. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of people. Uh, of course, he lost his case. But uh, I mean, that you you might want to ask, uh, what about those the two pitchers uh, who really broke broke it open? Uh, Messer Smith and McNally. Yeah, and then McNally, uh, who didn't sign their contracts, and uh, um, but. Um, well, yeah, but Kurt Flood. Battle, but he won the war, really. Yeah, players. yeah, but uh, you know that, that that's a good point. But I don't um, I don't know where you would put Kurt Flood. Uh, I know Mar- Marvin Miller would go in for like executives, uh, contributors. Uh, but I guess uh, Kurt Flood uh, would would be a contributor. But I saw, I remember Kurt Flood at the end of his career he was with the Washington Senators, and uh, and our, and he. He only played a handful of games, but I remember in spring training, he seemed to me to be a nervous wreck. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had gone through all kinds of stuff, I guess, and and uh, it was uncomfortable uh, uh, to be around him. Uh, so I think what we're going to do now is we're going to continue with the questions, if Ira doesn't mind, but because of the time factor of the podcast, we're going to have to wrap up the podcast. So what I'd like to do is, for those of you in the clubhouse... You're very lucky because tonight you get to buy the books here. Mm -hmm. To those of you listening to the podcast, once again, this is called Summers at Shea. Tom Seaver Loses His Overcoat and Other Met Stories by Ira Burkow. And what I'd like to do uh, to just end the podcast is uh, read the first paragraph of the first story, how the book opens, and the last paragraph of the last story because I think it gives you a... uh, it tells you all you need to know about the, the talent of Ira Burkow as a writer. The, the first paragraph, it's from a story called, this is how the book opens. Uh, the headline is Stained Glass, Casey Stengel, from August 2nd, 1968. Casey Stengel said he recently celebrated his 78th birthday. The baseball record book says it ought to be 79. No matter. Casey is one of those rare birds who never grows old. Mm-hmm. That's because he's never been young. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm going to ask Ira to read the last paragraph. Uh, The story is called Rain Check, July 7th, 1972. So we're going to give Ira the last word, mainly because this story brought so many memories back to me. I'm going to cry if I read it. So I'm going to let Ira read this last paragraph. uh, Just that. And oh, okay. That's enough. Well, the, the story is about uh, it's just a, a rainout, and so my, my my feelings about baseball and and then here's a rainout, and there was no game. Okay. And the last paragraph is, and yet in their wet pockets, these fans can clutch a rain check, a soggy but palpable symbol of a better day ahead. The rain check is a passport to sunshine. <laughs> oh. <laughs>